Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavage, and this is a podcast where you can discover debut authors through in-depth interviews. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. You can also follow Day Beautiful on all social media at Day Beautiful. That's Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Today's guest is the former reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. She holds an MFA from Columbia University and Brown University. She has received support from the Elizabeth George Foundation, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the Wolitzer Foundation. She currently lives in Chicago with her husband and daughter, and I'm so excited that she is the first guest of the Day Beautiful Podcast 2022. Her debut novel, The School for Good Mothers, is out now. I'm, of course, talking about the amazing, the incomparable Jasmine Chan. Hey, Jasmine. How are you doing today? Um, I'm doing okay. And thank you so much for, for having me on the podcast. I, I think your, uh, your site and your podcast, like came into being around the time that I sold my book in 2019. So I would see your, your posts, uh, flashing across my phone and all the social media. And I would begin dreaming, like maybe <laughs> one day I'll be invited. So I'm really excited to be here and, oh. How I'm doing, it's exactly three weeks until my pup date. So it's both feeling more real, but still a little intangible. Right before recording, I usually ask, how do I pronounce your name, even if it's Joe Smith? Your name is not Jasmine, even though people may think it is. You go by Jasmine. And right, correct, right? The, the story here is that it was 1978 with non-native English speaker parents mm-hmm. who had a baby name book and they wanted to name me Jasmine as in the flower, but I, I didn't actually learn this until my daughter was born. So in my late thirties, when I had my daughter, I learned that there was about half an hour in the hospital when my name was spelled correctly, <laughs> when it was spelled J A S M I N E. And then right before turning in the birth certificate forms, my mom erased that and then chose the other spelling J E S S A M I N E not knowing it was a completely different name with a completely <laughs> different pronunciation. So instead of getting it legally changed, which I certainly fantasized about doing uh, when I was younger, I have just been telling people to call me Jasmine for my whole life, even though it makes truly no sense. <laughs> and and it's, it's very confusing, I, especially if you do a lot of emailing with me. So I sign all my emails JC so that it um, is a little bit simpler. Mm-hmm. But basically, I tell people, like, don't go too crazy with your children's names and try not to do like baby, baby name book particulars because they will just live with it. I used to t- when I was a ch- small child, I would tell people, call me Jennifer <laughs> and just just like to neighbors and classmates and stuff. So I, I definitely feel a lot of um, longing when I meet people with with more straightforward names. Yeah, Adam is the most straightforward, I feel. Um, your your book is about mothers, um, not yes. naming children in incorrect spelling, but uh, the School of Good Mothers, uh, by the time this podcast is out, this book will be out. It's it's what I'm, I mean, every year I get excited for like the first great debut. Last, this year it was Detransition Baby, and that's been my favorite book the entire year. It like, and then the School for Good Mothers, I have been so stoked to talk to you for months now. Um, Thank you so much. Yes. Tell readers what it's about. The School for Good Mothers is about a Chinese American single mom named Frida Liu who loses custody of her toddler daughter, Harriet, after having one very bad day. 
and she gets sent to a newly created government run reform school for moms in order. So in order to get Harriet back, she has to spend a year at the school where she's retrained with other mothers from around the county and their transgressions range from benign to horrific. And if they don't pass all the school's tests, their parental rights will be terminated. So I've been describing the book as kind of like 1984, but for moms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just saw on your Instagram that a bookseller said it was, you know, 1984 and Handmaid's Tale for, I think, Gen Z. Um, so it's- that was so thrilling <laughs> and led to a conversation between me and my husband to figure out what age range is covered by Gen Z because he had to explain to me that all our millennial friends and in, in all our friends in their 30s were actually millennials and that mm-hmm. Gen Z is uh, people in their 20s. So if I have any opportunity to speak to the youth, that's really youth. exciting. What is it like being compared to these two like juggernauts like 1984 and, and Handmaid's Tale? Um, like your book is so good, but like you're being compared to pantheon level books thank you so much (laughs) i feel like it's really surreal and i think i spend most of my time trying not to Mm. dwell on it i mean honestly i would love to tell you that my daily life is more exciting but it's really still a lot of uh, childcare and laundry so so my my uh my home life um would would not lend itself to suggestions of uh that scale but i it's really exciting because i i really think any feminist dystopian novel that tackles government oppression of women is indebted to the handmaid's tale Mm -hmm. in some way and I was just asked in an interview last week if I was intending the Handmaid's Tale comparison. I was explaining that if I thought about that at all, I wouldn't have written anything because mm-hmm. I would have just been so consumed with anxiety about it. I I certainly have loved both of those books all my reading life as an adult. And mm-hmm. I also was really inspired by Never Let Me Go by Ishiguro, which is one of my favorites. And yeah. it's it's really beyond thrilling and kind of beyond comprehension to have those books as comps. And I, I was, when I was asked when I was selling the, the novel, um, when I was speaking to editors, they were asking what my big dream was. And I was saying like a book that lasts beyond its pub season, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. I was, I was coming I was coming from um, publishers, having worked at Publishers Weekly, and you you see just how many books come out each year yeah. and how many debuts come out, and to to have a reach beyond the the immediate season of of launch is is really the dream, and to reach readers. Definitely, yeah. I'm really bad at comps. I, I people ask me, "What was this book like?" I said, like, "I don't know," and like, I didn't even think of those two books. Never let me go makes more sense to me actually than any of the other two. Not that you know your book's not as great as the other two, but yeah, just like how, how set in reality it is. But yeah, there's just there's a tweak to it. Um, what made you start writing this book? What were you a mother by the time you started writing it? What where's what's the timeline on it? Well, the the joke I like to tell is that I was so freaked out about becoming a mother that I started a dystopian novel. (laughs) And I'm sure my daughter will have plenty to say about that when she's old enough to read it. 
So when I started the project, it was 2014. So it was a very different political landscape. Yeah. And I think at the time that I began the project, it felt much more dystopian and not necessarily as plausible and realistic as it reads right now, mm. given what the world is like in 2021. So when I started the project, I was in my mid to late 30s. I think I was around 35 or so and living in New York and working um, as a book reviews editor. And my partner and I were really ruminating a lot, probably me more so than him, um, on the question of whether or not we would have a baby. And it was pretty much the hardest decision of my adult life because I I feel like we could have had a completely great life if we'd chosen the other path of not having children. And I struggled a lot with this decision. I felt a great deal of ambivalence and fear and anxiety and also just so much pressure. And the biological clock pressure is, is very real because I, I certainly would have been quite happy to wait until like age 49 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I felt this intense pressure and I was thinking a lot about motherhood and around the time, probably a couple months before I ended up actually starting the project, I I read an article in the New Yorker by Rachel Aviv called Where Is Your Mother? And it was about um, a single mom who'd left her her toddler son at home. And then it followed her nightmarish experience with the family court system and child protective services. And what lingered in my mind after reading that article was not just the rage, but also the feeling like the way they were talking to the mother and the way they were talking about parenting felt so much like science fiction. It felt so, so eerie. And Mm -hmm. it was really scary to think that something like love and affection could be judged by a certain set of standards. And also they were judging her by this very Western American set of standards. And the mom was, was non-American. And so was continually failing and misreading cues and they felt she was cold and not affectionate and things like that. And so Frida is very much my own creation, but the the circumstances, I think that I got a spark of inspiration about the circumstances and then it made me start reading about the whole world of parenting classes and family court and um, termination of parental rights. Mm-hmm. And I before I started doing that research reading, I didn't realize how many families each year are affected by this and how, how many parents lose custody of their children, like perhaps forever. And I, I guess I'm surprised that it's not more widely talked about because it, I mean, to me, that's the greatest nightmare as a parent is to mm. lose, yeah. not just lose my child, but lose my child to the government. Um, And so those two things were brewing in my mind. And what happened was that I had a really good writing day. And I can tell you exactly when it was because I took all my vacation days because I didn't get into McDowell and Yato after applying a dozen times. And so I, I took all my vacation days and I made a little retreat for myself at a friend's house in upstate New York. And I was just alone there, snowed in trying to work on my short story collection, having one terrible idea after another. I have entire notebooks filled with the terrible ideas from those two weeks. And I happened to have one really good day where I wrote for six hours and I didn't think, I didn't dare think that I was starting a novel, but I I knew that I had 
a really crazy idea by the end of that day. And that draft ended up having Frida's whole arc from start to finish. And it had the voice, which was um, most important and actually stayed consistent through all the years of working in the book. And it had all the secondary characters, um, the women in pink lab coats, the school. Um, I wish I could tell you exactly where it came from, but those were the those were the things happening in my life and coming in and out of my brain at that time. But what happened was um, really just getting lucky and feeling really inspired. And it, it of course, took years to realize mm -hmm. the potential of that draft. Yeah, from that draft, the years of potential it took were. Did, was this something you were constantly working on for a bit? Did you put it away? How did it turn from that day of inspiration to the novel we have now? Well, I was very lucky that I happened to take the 20 page, very dense draft, which I thought was going to be just a really complicated short story um, to the Breadloaf Conference in, in August of 2014. And I happened to be in a workshop with Percival Everett and he really gave me the nudge that I needed to, to try to develop as a novel. Cause I, I mean, I have a hundred pages of a, a terrible plotless novel somewhere in my file, somewhere from early in grad school. I think I was trying to write a sort of sci-fi dystopian thing about a birth cult where all the women are named Alice, except mm -hmm. there was no plot and maybe no events at all. <laughs> so it, it was just 100 pages of something is sitting in my closet. Um, so I, it's, I, it's not that I haven't tried before, but I was very determined to keep going with a short story collection. And Percival Everett said, you know, I don't want to make your life bad, but I think you have a novel. And he, he said, if you can get this right, you're going to have your finger on the pulse of culture which is very exciting to hear about, but also like, oh, I, I need to actually do this then because in, in order to like, if you're talking about something that's supposed to represent um, current culture, you, you do need to not take 25 years to, to finish it. But I, I happened to be moving from New York to Philadelphia that year because my, my husband went to um, Temple for grad school. So we were, we were in the process of moving and then because we were moving, I lined up a bunch of residencies that year, which was the most glorious experience. So I had a couple of very fortunate things happen, which was to have an idea for a book and suddenly have time. Yeah. 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 And, and you mentioned, like Percival said, your, it's your fingers on the pulse of culture. And then earlier you said 2014 is a vastly different political landscape than what we are in now. And what we went through from 16 to 20. Um, has the book changed in your mind? Like what it's about, how you feel about it because of what has happened politically over the past four to six years? I made a conscious decision to not write Trump into the book. Sure. And I didn't want to reference the Trump administration. I, I didn't want it to live in my book because it, we were already living with it every day. And yeah. um, I, I just didn't, I didn't want to date the book in that particular way. But I think going back to our question from earlier with 1984 and So, I think what makes those books really a different creation is that they invent an entire political system. Yeah. And so 
I did much more minimalist dystopian world building because I really like world building where you're just giving readers the absolute essential and letting them imagine the rest. So I tried to really pare down the world building. So for instance, you don't get a lot about all the laws that might have changed. And part of that was a it's just a practical decision because the original drafts were so long. <laughs> and I can't even tell you how many pages have been thrown away and how many lessons have been thrown away and like tons of extra scenes and subplots and characters. Um, it was it was definitely the case of a short story writer learning to write a novel by just trial and error. So there, I didn't really work from an outline besides the curriculum of the school. So a lot of it was just trying things out. And if it didn't work, discarding it and trying again. Um, one thing I think that changed since 2014 is I didn't need to do as much world building because the idea of a government institution that crops up out of nowhere and is a mess suddenly became plausible. Yeah, And a world in which kids are put in cages is already so dystopian. It, it's more dystopian than any dystopian fiction can be. So, mm -hmm. so suddenly my outlandish creation reads as much more realistic than it, than it did when I started, I think. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. When I, I guess when I was reading it, yeah, I didn't like, I know I should have, but I didn't attach dystopian to it at all. I was like, this is just like fiction to me at this point, which is I'm laughing through it because of how sad kids in cages uh, the Supreme Court abortion decision, all these things are just terrible. And like, yes, your book seems way more plausible than it's probably supposed to be at this point. Well, it, it was definitely written in the spirit of social satire and dystopian mm -hmm. fiction, but I think in the, in the many years it took to finish it and now um, the long lead up to publication, the world just became really terrible so the there's just a different different connections and residences because of that yeah definitely I was uh, so before we were recording I mentioned Kathy who is the book buyer for Tatter Cover her and I both love your book and yesterday we were talking about your book because I was like hey I'm interviewing Jasmine tomorrow any questions for her any any topics and then she gave me some things that we've already talked about but her she was curious and and I am as well about have you heard from mothers who have read your book and what their reaction is? Because mothers, uh, we, we were talking like, to be a mother now is completely different than five, 10, 15 years ago. There's just so much scrutiny, so many politicians just deciding what should happen, which is in, what's in your book. Um, have you heard anything from maybe mothers who have read it, other writers who are mothers? Like, have you, what's that like? I've certainly had a lot of really beautiful gratifying conversations with writer moms who've read it. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I don't read the Goodreads reviews. So, so there's, I'm very grateful to the folks who've uh, read and written reviews on Goodreads, but I have been warned to not wade into that. And so I'm, I'm probably not going to read like the, the comment section when um, some pre-pub essays are published, but the, the moms that I have heard from, um, I think they felt really seen 
And that was really thrilling. And some of my closest mom friends in West Philly were texting me responses in real time as they read, like, I'm on page 220 crying. My child is wiping my tears and things like that. And or they would like respond to a joke, like by texting me, like, I'm on, I'm on page 178. This is so funny. And and one one new writer friend uh, told me that the women in pink lab coats embodied how she feels on the playground with her baby son every day in Brooklyn, like how like the feeling of being watched was captured by that. And so it, it helped me explain that. I mean, one, one thing that's challenging and um, speaking about one's book that was like a secret project for so long is to, to explain like intentions and goals and things like that. But I, I think in a lot of ways, the surveillance in the book and the feeling of of being watched by the women pink lab coats and all the technology was a way to make literal the fe- the feeling of being watched and judged um that is i think more part of modern american parenting life than it was necessarily like when my parents were ma- raising me in the the 80s and 90s cuz now there is the internet and blogs and everything like that so there's more community but there's also just so much more um vitriol too my 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 husband reads the mom blogs for me (laughs) because if we have uh, a sleep problem or something he'll go on the blogs because he he knows that I'll get too stressed out by it and he'll tell me stuff like these moms are really mean to each other they really went after each other and because I think the like one mom will post something and then a bunch of people will chime in about like what a terrible neglectful parent that person is so it's it just feels like a a really different parenting culture than the one that existed 20 years ago I mean my like my mom was my mom was definitely a career mom and I mean my parents both worked full-time and evenings and weekends they worked I mean they're we have a very classic immigrant family dynamic. They, they just had to work all the time. And there wasn't the same pressure to not just work all the time, but also be with your kids all the time. And it feels like now it's, it's a really impossible set of expectations where you not just have to support your family. You're also supposed to be creatively and emotionally fulfilled and you're supposed to um, pay attention to your kids like every waking hour so you have to do these things that actually are not possible to do in the same 24 hour span of time Mm -hmm. yeah I feel like being a mom now yeah like you said is vastly different than when my mom was a mom uh, you know 90s and early 2000s I thank you for being a mom I used to before I was full-time in the book world I did social work for um families who had infants and toddlers with disabilities and I dealt with moms exclusively for the most part because they were the the ones that either stayed at home or cared enough to take time off work and not the husband or not the father um anyway so I have a soft spot for moms and I think that's why all my favorite books are like about mothers almost in a way I'm now just realizing that like my favorite books are always have a have good moms in it anyway um I just I listened switch. to oh, oh go ahead. Oh, I, go ahead. No, I no, just listened to ahead. your conversation with um, Rachel Yoder um, <laughs> in preparation for today, and so that's the book I've been telling everyone to read. Like, if you liked my book, you really yeah. need to read Night Butch. Yeah. And I, I feel like I should have little cards printed because I've recommended it <laughs> to so many people. Yeah, that's such a oh, yeah. That's I love that book. I've, I, I, 
not to tell too long of a story, but like in 2021, I interviewed her three times. Someone asked me to do a, a book festival in Philly with her virtually, my podcast. And then she did an event with Tattered Cover. I'm, we're doing a, like a debut series we're trying to start. And I was like, Rachel, I'm so sorry that I bugged you three times this year, but I just love your book that much. So can we make this happen? Um, yeah, anyway, yeah, Night Bitch and The School for Good Mothers, two amazing books, love them. Um, I wanna shift slightly to just your writing process. You talked about you were a short story writer learning to write a novel. And you, you already alluded to this, but what were, what were the big lessons that you learned throughout uh, your writing process for The School for Good Mothers? Well, I think the thing that makes my process probably a little different, and I'm, I'm saying this because so many people have been either shocked or horrified when I say it, is that I wrote the whole first draft longhand, which I can assure you is the most inefficient way to do things. But I basically just wrote the draft in notebooks and then typed them up and didn't look at the typed up material until I got to the very last scene. So by the time I got to the very last scene, what I had was a big mess, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I knew that, that because of my editor tendencies, like my whole professional careers as an editor, um, I love cutting things. I knew that if I didn't write myself all the way to the end, I would never get to the end. Cause I would just keep revising chapters one and two for 10 years or something. Mm -hmm. And I tend not to draft on screen because I, if I did that, I would take five hours of writing and cut it down to like a sentence. So those are, those are my writing tendencies. I, I'm a very, I'm very much a tinkerer and a deleter. So I tend to work longhand to, to force myself to, to keep going. But what I learned from the process was that an outline would have been very helpful, <laughs> but <laughs> I think maybe my being a novice at this and not having an outline and not necessarily having a plan maybe allowed it to be a book about many different things. And along the way, when we were struggling for comps too, I would, I would describe it as like, it's like severance. It's about Vailing Ma, which is a book that I love where mm -hmm. it's got many different threads that don't feel like they should go together. So sure. So somehow the Library of Congress has classified this as science fiction, which to me is hilarious because I get into a panic just using Google Docs. But there's a, there is a sci-fi speculative element, but there's also a Chinese American immigrant story yeah. woven throughout. I kind of wove my daughter's baby memory book into, <laughs> into the, the novel because like so many of the developmental milestones are taken from her and and then there's the story of the friendships between the women too. So it, it's about many different things, partly because I didn't necessarily think about what it all meant until we were at the editing stage. So mm. the other thing Percival told me that I, I have on my bulletin board was um, just keep making the world. Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about what it means. Yeah. So I, I didn't really think about um, intentions and themes and goals until I had the the whole book to look at and probably until the chapters were rewritten into chapter shaped text <laughs> i mean it was yeah. not in it was not in uh, chapter shaped chapters for years and oh wow and i really didn't show it to anyone until probably pr 
pretty late in, in the process. So it's in a lot of ways, it's the, it's much more secretive than, um, like I, I can't imagine sharing online like that I had a good good or bad writing day or that I'm working on a yeah. new project. Like I'm just super secretive and superstitious about that kind of stuff. I applaud the people who can be more transparent. Mm. But um, when I work, I have to be very, very offline and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of lost in my own world. Mm-hmm. And I mean, for for years, I think our community in West Philly thought I was just a mysteriously busy stay-at-home mom who just didn't make it to all the the school events and birthday parties. No one could actually figure out what I was doing, but I I didn't really talk about the fact that I was writing a book. Yeah. Did writer friends know you were writing a book? Um, they, some of them knew I was writing a book. They Well, they knew because I would whine to them about sure. um, how slow it all was. And they would give me pep talks to tell me to keep going that and that the first novel is hard. Um, so so writer friends definitely um, provided a lot of pep talks along the way. But I, I didn't do extensive workshopping as I mm-hmm. as I had for my short stories. I, I gave one chapter at a time to my friends, Yvonne Woon, um, who's published uh, several YA novels and just uh, published a new one last year called If If You Then Me. And then the poet Keith Wilson, um, who was my my tech advisor on a lot of the, the fun tech elements are, are Keith's, Keith's, uh, Keith and my creation. Awesome. Um, yeah. I find that interesting and, and I'm glad you brought that up because every writer is different. There are people who need the community every step of the way and, and tweet about it and it's okay not to. That's kind of what Day Beautiful is always about too. Like not, I, I don't ask for you to give advice, but in a way you always, writers always give advice in some way, shape or form. Um, yeah. I will not ask you what you're currently working on. Oh, you can ask. <laughs> you're You're welcome to ask. I'll ask this. Are you outlining? What is what is like the process looking like? Is it vastly different than School for Good Mothers? Or are you just doing the same thing? Just writing, writing, writing? I would love to tell you that I was writing new fiction. Um, mm. I think it might be a little while before I start drafting anything again. Um, so in the time when I could have started new fiction, what I did instead was move my family to another city. So, so that, that used up a lot of the, the quiet period um, of pre-pub. So basically we finished the edits and then things started getting busy um, with pre-pub. And then we moved from Philadelphia to Chicago. And I've been since then working on learning how to write essays, which turns out to be really, really hard. <laughs> and it's so much harder than writing fiction in a lot of ways. And, and um, started doing some blurbing, which is very exciting and trying to catch up on my entire bookshelf worth of TBR pile books and getting ready for the launch and dealing with the ups and downs of pandemic parenting of a small child who's just started back in school. So I, I think I'm, I'm trying to take a slightly slower pace just because I'm, I'm 43 and I've been working toward this for my whole adult life. So I wanted to be able to like take a moment to enjoy it too. But I'm, I'm really anxious to and eager to write fiction again, but I think that I'll probably have to do a 
pick a, pick a time when um, I can be secretive and offline and, and just work at my snail's pace all over again. Definitely. Speaking of your TBR pile, what have you actually read recently that you loved or what's on that to be read pile that you can't wait to get into? I just read a, a few really remarkable novels that are coming out uh, in the spring. One is called Post Traumatic by Chantal Johnson. And then the, the novel Little Rabbit by Alyssa Song Day is the sexiest book I've ever read. It's amazing. And I'm really eager to read Easy Beauty, the memoir by Chloe Cooper Jones, which is coming out in April. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that has dropped on my doorstep. I was just looking for it. I think it's on my other bookshelf. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited for that one as well. What was the first one you said before Little Rabbit? Uh, post-traumatic. Uh, it's called Post Traumatic. It's really, really funny. I mean, you would not guess from that title that it would be hilarious, but it is so smart and so hilarious. And I I felt so seen by the book that I I felt like has the author read my my journal before <laughs> like it was it was so like secretive stuff from my brain that I've never seen in in fiction before about like how women relate to their bodies and dieting and um and just being a woman in the world in the 21st century it just captured so much of that and I, I felt very jealous as I read both books. <laughs> Where can people find you? Uh, I'll link your, your your website and stuff in the show notes, but just where, where can we find you? What's the best I, way to connect? So I, if, if, there's, if there are writers listening who are um, anxious about social media like I am, I'll just say I didn't have any public social media until after I sold my book. Uh-huh. And I know that there's um, a lot of talk that you, you have to have a big presence to sell a book, but I was uh, like pretty much unfindable until... <laughs> I, I, I didn't join Twitter or like have a public Instagram account until until actually after we'd sold the book to a publisher and I started lurking and learning about how that works. So it, it, it is okay to be offline too, but I, I now do have a Twitter account. So it's uh, my first name and my last name for Twitter and my first name with a period in between for, for Instagram and uh, a website that's just my name. So the good thing about my misspelled name is that the URL was still available. Thank you to Jasmine for being the first guest on the Day Beautiful podcast in 2022. You can discover more debut authors at daybeautiful.net or follow us on social media at daybeautiful. As always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. <laughs>